The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And judges as partners in, in the uh, legislative process. Uh, these kinds of uh, the rhetorics of the, of the judicial system, I think, not only raised uh, eyebrows, but also uh, created some kind of, of resentment in, in certain parts of the Israeli society towards the, the court. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 6th, 2023. Amichai Cohen and Yuval Sheni are both Israeli legal scholars and longtime Lawfare contributors. Sheni is a professor of international law at the Hebrew University Law School in Jerusalem. Cohen is a professor at Ono Academic College. They are both also scholars at the Israel Democracy Institute, and together they are also co-authors of a six-part series in Lawfare about the ongoing effort by the Israeli government to alter the Israeli judicial system. It is a detailed account of a very serious reform operation in Israel, one the authors argue is dangerous, they joined me in the virtual jungle studio to discuss the ongoing protests in Israel, the ongoing legislative efforts, and the history of the Israeli judicial system and its growing power that has led to this crisis. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 6th, the Israeli judicial system on the brink. So I want to start with uh, the protests that have, as of uh, yesterday, and we are recording on Thursday afternoon, Washington time, been broken up with force by the Israeli police. Amichai, get us started. This is not something that normally happens in Israeli uh, civilian protests on the domestic side how unusual is it for there to be protests against government policy by Israeli citizens that the police respond to with uh, force and violence? So uh, I think the, there are two main differences between uh, previous protests, and there have been previous protests, and the um, current protests. Uh, the first one is that 
we have now the Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir, heavily involved in the actual operation of the police. Uh, this is something completely new. The uh, tradition of the Israeli police is uh, independence in terms of the application of force in uh, demonstrations. But uh, Ben-Gvir has changed that. Uh, he has been very explicit about changing that. He said up front, I want to control police operations. And uh, he was actually in the headquarters of the police. Allegedly, you know, uh, reports uh, are that he pushed for using more uh, force. The second point is that there have been uh, civilian protests in Israel and there, there was police force used in order to break them down and open uh, roads. However, usually these are used when the protesters themselves are violent, use violence in an extreme measure. It doesn't seem that the protesters in this instance were very violent in, in their uh, activities. I wouldn't say they were completely peaceful, and, and I must say that in the past eight weeks, when the uh, protests have been taking place, the police has been very tolerant, generally, regarding the protests. However, this time it seems that the police decided to do some kind of show of force, and it's of course connected to my uh, earlier point. All right, so the protests... Yuval have been going on since the government announced the plans for this judicial reform package about which the two of you have written a, I, I think, just exemplary series of pieces on lawfare. You know, when you, when you read your account of the, of the package, these are fairly technical changes. And my Initial question is, why has this judicial reform package produced such a dramatic public reaction as to produce weeks and weeks and weeks of protests at this scale that it is actually, you know, certainly not what I would have predicted a, the public reaction to be? Why have people reacted quite as strongly as they have? Yeah, I think it's a it's a combination of a, of a package which is uh, which it may be technical in its uh, in the formal sense in in the sense that it's changing a majority here and a majority there, but it is a very uh, radical protest uh, which is uh, which I think many uh, many people in Israel have uh, uh, identified uh, what's uh, what's behind this and and what's behind this is really a, a radical transformation of the system of governance that we have in Israel uh, but I think it's not just that and I think you, you're right to point out uh, the fact that this uh, th this uh, reform has been uh, a pushed uh, extremely uh, aggressively so the speed in which the reform is being pushed forward, uh, without a deliberative process, without a, a good faith attempt to uh, formulate a, a broad consensus, without even uh, discussing this, you know, with the Israeli public in a, in a very uh, 
comprehensive manner. I think this uh, this is an additional factor that is, is has created a lot of uh, suspicion and hostility. It does seem like a shock and awe kind of uh, operation. And add to that the fact that this is being uh, led by uh, a government that has uh, within it people who have been uh, themselves implicated in criminal offenses. Uh, some have been convicted. Some have uh, served time in prison. Uh, the prime minister himself is, is, is currently on trial on three corruption charges. Uh, and add to that the fact that, I mean, this government has not only pushed for this reform, it is already in the, in the context of uh, the coalition agreements, has already uh, threatened to or uh, planned to uh, change the, the law in Israel in many uh, very uh, critical respects, uh, making it a much more uh, rightist uh, country, a much more uh, religious and conservative-oriented country. So I think the push uh, on all fronts uh, so uh, speedily and with, and with uh, politicians that already enjoy very limited trust, I think this is, uh, for many Israelis, uh, this was more than one bridge too far. It was a, a number of bridges too far simultaneously, and that that generated the kind of response, which I think is, 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 is quite surprising in its intensity. Okay, so one, one thing that is confusing from an outsider's perspective about this package is what it is really a response to. In some ways, it is a response, as you describe, to the corruption charges against a number of, of ministers, in a larger sense, it's a response to the growing power of the Israeli Supreme Court over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, and in some ways, it's a response to the court's uh, willingness to uh, the, the sort of unusual uh, administrative law posture of the Israeli Supreme Court, which can hear kind of challenges to the reasonableness of, of government action. I'm curious from both of you, um, uh, Amichai, first, how do you understand what the policy objective here really is and what the, what the problem is that the, the package is meant to address? So there are two or three separate problems there's actually a coalition of powers which we, with each one trying to achieve a different goal, I think. One of them is, of course, Netanyahu, which, which has some kind of legal problems. The second is the ultra-Orthodox segment of the Israeli society, which for a long time has been at odds with the court system, and uh, has had grievances against the courts on several fronts. These, however, alone would not have been enough in order to uh, push for this change. What is going on, I think, is, and we've seen it in, in other countries as well, perhaps also in the United States, but in Israel in the recent decade or 15 years, is a populist movement uh, which sees any review by the courts as illegitimate. And using certain disagreements within the Israeli society, 
between Jews and Arabs, between uh, uh, religious and secular Jews, using these differences in order to gain more power. And the court, in many cases, is a limitation on the power of these forces who are pushing for a more religious, for a more, more national Israel. And, and as populists, they feel that this uh, limitation on their power is illegitimate, it's problematic, and they are trying to push it away. Yuval? Yeah, I'll just add two additional. I agree with Amichai. I'll, I'll, I'll add two ad- additional, perhaps, considerations. One is that there is also a strong uh, um, uh, group of settlers or, or uh, uh, political parties which are very much aligned with the settler movement. Uh, and they uh, also have their own uh, uh, set of grievances uh, against the court, which uh, has been uh, seen as uh, as an element that has slowed down their political ambition of uh, expanding settlements and uh, uh, seizing uh, land uh, in, in, in the West Bank. But I think there is also um, what we are seeing is, is perhaps a long-held uh, frustration on the right in Israel, that, that the right has been in power in Israel for uh, on and off uh, for the last 40 years. Uh, and yet uh, the court uh, has remained, uh, by and large, a rather liberal, relatively speaking, a liberal institution so there is this uh, famous uh, adage uh, that you sometimes hear on right-wing c- circles, how is it that we vote right, but we get left? And, and I think that this push is an attempt to, uh, for the first time in, in 40 years, for the right-wing to seize, uh, to, to be in a position to steer the ship of governance in the direction that it wishes without any uh, interruptions, without any obstacles. All right. So this produces a package. These these various strains that you've both identified produce a a package with a number of different elements that appear to address very different things, but have in common a kind of assertion of majoritarian parliamentary control over uh, the legal system. So Yuval, uh, if you would take us through the uh, several components of the package, and then I'm going to try to probe a little bit about each one. Right. So uh, the package uh, deals mostly with the balance of power between the Supreme Court and, and the Knesset, the parliament. The way uh, it is structured is that it seeks uh, to limit the ability of uh, the court to strike down legislation, Uh, and it it does so uh, by introducing uh, a supermajority requirement for uh, decisions on the court to uh, strike down legislation. The court in Israel has 15 justices. Uh, the current uh, system is that uh, any majority can strike down legislation that uh, violates the basic laws which serve in Israel as a sort of constitution. Uh, the reform uh, package seeks to uh, render this threshold much higher. According to uh, one initial proposal, 
all 15 justices would have had to support uh, the uh, striking down of legislation in order for this to pass. The current uh, uh, version that has pa- that uh, as as passed first reading is is gone for first reading uh, is uh, talks about 12 out of 15. Uh, so this is uh, one element making it much harder for the court to strike legislation. And even uh, the second part of the reform is that even in those rare cases uh, where the court would strike down uh, legislation, the Knesset could still override that decision and, re- and, re- and revive the law that has been struck down through a simple uh, Knesset majority of 61 out of 120 members of Knesset. This is, of course, in, Israeli poli- in, in the Israeli system, you cannot form a government unless you have 61 uh, seats in, uh, behind you. So that means that every any government of the day can uh, then, uh, I- in a way, pass unconstitutional uh, legislation, either uh, after the court has struck it down or according to the version that is moving forward, also uh, preempting the court by uh, deviating from the constitutional standard. Add to that that the, 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 the package also seeks to uh, interfere with the system of appointing of judges in Israel. Uh, currently, it's a committee which is, uh, uh, which is composed of politicians, uh, but also lawyers and judges. The lawyers and judges are in the majority, and the proposals seek to reverse that and, and, and essentially give not only politicians, but actually the politicians of the, co- of the ruling coalition uh, an inbuilt majority in the appointments committee, which means that they would be able to appoint all judges in Israel to all instances uh, without a system uh, that is similar uh, to what we have in many other countries. And even in some respects, it's, it's even worse than the system that we have uh, that you have in the United States. There are other aspects of the plan. Uh, just uh, noting very briefly, uh, there would also be a limitation on the court's ability to exercise administrative review over governmental decisions and to strike uh, decisions which are uh, unreasonable. Uh, there would also be uh, limitations on the ability of government lawyers to, uh, to generate binding uh, legal opinions uh, for the government. And there would also be a limitation of review of the basic laws themselves of the constitutional provisions. Although in Israel, again, one of the anomalies of the system is that um, 61 members of Knesset can pass a basic law and according to the proposals would shield it from any uh, judicial review whatsoever. So one of the things that, I mean, these sound quite diverse, but one of the, it seems to me, the thing that knits them together Amichai, is that they they all involve the assertion of the majority parties or the majority coalition's control over the judicial process. So from appointments to an override to limiting the ability of the professional lawyers within the executive agencies to issue binding legal opinions, it all seems to free up the political echelon to have the final say. Uh, is that a fair characterization or is it more complicated than that? I think it's a fair characterization and I want to give a, a framework here. So in terms of concentration of political power, Israel's political system is very concentrated. So it's not a federal country. It's a parliamentary system in which uh, the heads of the parties of the coalition control both 
the parliament and the government. We have no two houses of parliament. We have no independent uh, president which can veto legislation. We are not part of any international organization or any international human rights court. Political power in Israel is very centralized. And what developed in response to this centralization is a strong uh, judicial system, which is built on, on two bases. One is a strong Supreme Court. Uh, some would say activist in, in certain areas, uh, certainly activist, but not in all areas, but as definitely a strong Supreme Court and a strong government uh, legal service. A professional and, and independent government legal service with authorities that are, in a sense, unique. So this created the balance in Israeli politics between a very, very centralized political system and, to balance it, a judicial system. But the anomaly, as Yuval has said, that this is all built on sand. So it's very easy for a, a political powers or political coalition which wishes to change this delicate balance to simply do what they are doing right now and say, we have the majority, we have the power, we are going to take the powers away from the judicial system. And, and I think this is the thread that uh, connects all these uh, different suggestions. All right, so... This raises the question of how Israel managed to build such an elaborate system of set checks and balances on the basis of sand. This is a, this is a very jarring idea to Americans who are used to the idea of checks and balances as rooted in separation of powers. They are the, the, the basis of the entire constitution. And it all comes back to the written constitution. But as you guys describe in this series, the Israeli system of checks and balances kind of, first of all, it develops relatively recently. And secondly, it develops based mostly on the Knesset kind of tolerating its development over time in that it could always have been changed with 61 votes. So Yuval, give us a bit of an overview of how this system developed and why it developed a kind of with the toleration in, in a system of ultimate legislative supremacy that the legislature actually sort of let it happen. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting story, uh, but uh, yeah, and I think it is. It has to do with uh, with perhaps uh, t two or three um, aspects of of, of the situation. Uh, one is that uh, for many years uh, Israel had uh, quite strong uh, consensus around a number of institutions. One of them being the IDF. Uh, the other being the Supreme Court. The, the IDF being the army. The army. Uh, so the Supreme Court would uh, obtain until uh, 20 years ago uh, approval ratings of about 80% in, in polling by the Israel Democracy Institute and other uh, organizations. 
So the idea that the, that the Supreme Court is exercising review on governmental policy was something that uh, was quite uh, acceptable. I mean, uh, the, the, the change has come in a way uh, from uh, the late 1990s onwards when the court did assume more power. In parallel, politics, uh, especially on the right, Uh, started organizing more and more around the idea of uh, pushing back against uh, some of the liberal decisions that the court was issuing through challenging the authority of the court. And we are seeing a gradual erosion of support for the court. So now, uh, according to our polling at the IDI, Israel Democracy Institute, the court is about uh, has about half of the approval ratings, uh, the support, the diffuse support that it had 20 years ago. So now it is about 40, uh, 41 or 42% uh, support. So we have seen a decline in the, in the level of political support for the court, which is not just because this has happened, it's because there has been an, an intensive campaign uh, against the court for, for years now, a, a couple of decades, uh, which is, uh, has created a public opinion which is much more open to changing the balance of power. And the second factor, which is, uh, which is significant here, which uh, explains why uh, this hasn't happened until now, is that the, the gov- governments in Israel for uh, always, I mean, since the state was established, were always uh, coalition governments. There has never been a party that has obtained more than 50% uh, of the seats in parliament. This is, a, of course, a very different system than the American system. It's a system where you have uh, you could have in parliament 10 different parties or eight or 12, and they have to uh, strike um, a bargain. They have to reach build a coalition. And uh, up until uh, this uh, government, uh, all governments uh, that we have seen have had parties that were uh, quite uh, supportive of the court, or at least they didn't see the court as uh, in a hostile manner. And therefore, they simply um, exercised a sort of a veto power over attempts to uh, tamper with the, with the tradition in which the court in Israel has this authority. What is unique about this government is this is a full, uh, we call it male male, full, full right wing uh, government. Uh, and there is no longer uh, within the coalition any element that is that has any pro-court sentiment. And that makes uh, a development that, uh, like Amichai said, it was an organic settle, uh, a development that has been an organic development, a gradual development, but not really embedded in a, in a, in a strong constitutional text. It makes it much more vulnerable to these sort of changes. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got 
a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. One of the things I loved about this series was that you are 
very candid about the areas in which the court's own behavior over the years has generated some of the resentment that it is now having to fight off. Uh, you refer to that just now uh, when you described how it started assuming more power in the 90s. So, Amichai, I'm just going to ask this bluntly. How much of this is the court's own fault and the chickens coming home to roost? Okay, so so some of it, uh, some of the blame lays with the with lies with with the court in the sense that the judges were not good politicians. I'm not sure we want to expect uh, judges to be uh, good politicians. They are judges, not politicians. But certainly, looking at it from an, uh, an outside perspective, decisions of the court alienated certain important segments in the Israeli society. I think the most critical one was the ultra-Orthodox segment of the Israeli society, which is a very important and growing part of the Israeli society. And the court, in several decisions, some of them constitutional decisions, so striking down laws that were important to the ultra-Orthodox community and other in administrative decisions, uh, the court alienated this uh, segment of the Israeli society, and and uh, certainly this was not politically, as I said, uh, perhaps uh, wise. The second point is that the court intervened in areas in which I think at the end of the day, the Israeli public uh, viewed the fact that the court intervened in these areas as problematic. Uh, religion and state, for example, was an area in which the court intervened, and I'm not sure that the important parts of the public uh, viewed favorably the fact that the court intervened with, without any direct connection to the actual result of the intervention, but the fact that the court was willing to intervene in these uh, area, the court, I must say, reluctantly intervened in many of these areas, but at the end of the day, I think the the, the public saw them as, as areas that in which the Knesset should have uh, decided and not the court. And and I think the last perhaps mistake or, or reason or the blame you could put at the door of the court is that justices, and I think unnecessarily speaking about the role of judges in, in making policy, and, and their, the constitutional revolution and judges as partners in, in the uh, legislative process. Uh, these kinds of uh, the rhetorics of the, of the judicial system, I think, not only raised uh, eyebrows, but also uh, created some kind of, of resentment in, in certain parts of the Israeli society towards the, the court. Yuval, what do you think? Is there an element of this that is a kind of legitimate backlash against a court that has a kind of grandiosity and a sort of a proud uh, interventionism that a, a democratic polity eventually bristles at? Well, I mean, it's... Uh... 
I, I tend to agree with uh, with Amichai about the statements that, that some of the grandiose statements and also uh, some actually were found in decisions in which the court actually rejected the petitions but made very nice statements. Uh, when you look at the actual uh, record of uh, you know how many in how many cases did the court strike down legislation uh, or in how what percentage of administrative cases are being admitted. The numbers are quite minimalist. I mean, the court has not, uh, you know, has, has struck 22 laws since 1995 when it assumed its power. Uh, so, so that's not, that's really, I mean, when you compare this to other Supreme Courts around the world, this is not, I mean, this is not a large number. And, you know, many of our, uh, of our friends and colleagues in the NGO society sector, I mean, they laugh at the idea that the, that the Supreme Court is an activist. They see the Supreme Court actually as a very conservative court. So I, uh, so I think it's, a, it's a, you know, like in many things in life, it's, it's a little bit in the eyes of the beholder. I mean, the court was not particularly activist in its, in its work. It was not probably also particularly conservative. It uh, decided its cases. It made some uh, statements, although I should say many of these statements go back decades ago. Uh, I would also say, and that's also important for the uh, analysis and, and per- perhaps uh, how, how we should evaluate the current situation, the composition of the court has changed over the years. The fact that there have been here right-wing governments, uh, successive right-wing governments, had also had an impact on the composition of the court. The court today is much more conservative than it was 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago because uh, politicians were quite skillful in appointing more conservative judges. So in a way, for, for many of us who are following the Supreme Court and its case law, uh, the urgency for the uh, reform package seems very strange because uh, even if uh, if there has been uh, nothing would have been done, it's quite clear that within five years, three, five years, I mean, the majority on the court would have been conservative anyway. Are there some legitimate grievances? Yes, maybe some, you know, not all, not all decisions are great and the court might have, you know, uh, overstepped its limits uh, in, in, in a few cases or with, a few, with respect to a few constituencies, at least from their perspective, maybe has not conducted itself in the most uh, prudent manner. But by and large, I think it's, uh, I mean, we have to look at, uh, at other explanations and that is, the wishes of politicians to have, have the opportunity to pursue their policies without legal constraints. Okay, so before we turn to the prospects of passage of of this package, I, I just want to ask you both about the comparison to American discontent with the judiciary, which has in the last 50 years, principally been in the province of the political right, as in Israel, and has had some sort of similar sounding elements, uh, the talk of judicial activism and the talk of, you know, unelected judges usurping the power of, uh, of, of the people's representatives. But has increasingly migrated, as the court has migrated to the right, has increasingly become an anxiety of the left uh, and the center. To what extent is the Israeli anti-judiciary movement and judicial reform movement similar to, and to what extent is it different from the optically seeming American complaints about the Supreme Court and the lower courts? 
I think there is, first of all, direct American effect on, on the way Israelis act. You, you can see it. So the research uh, think tanks and, and politicians who uh, speak about judicial activism, we can see that they uh, have learned from ideas uh, coming from the United States and have adopted the rhetoric and and the um, claims that are made in the in the United States uh, and and the the framework seems to uh, to be different uh, i think there is a difference because uh, and as you uh, stated earlier the israeli court has developed in the last uh, generation so the idea of constitutional democracy has not been here uh, a generation ago. And Israelis do not have this more than 200 years of history of a court striking down laws. And it's easy for them to speak about the previous generation, right? The ideal court of a previous generation that has been able to maintain democracy without striking down laws and without judicial activism and without intervention. So in a sense, it's much easier for the politicians and and academics critical of the court to imagine a democratic state without a a court. Maybe maybe I can add, Ben, that the the appointment system in the the United States is, of course, also uh, being... uh, put forward within debates in Israel is an example that you can be a democracy and have uh, and have politicians appoint uh, judges or justices. So this is, uh, I think, an important component. I, I think part of, uh, more, more broadly, part of the uh, rhetorical tools that are being used by supporters of the reform is a, is a cherry-picking strategy where they bring the uh, the uh, judicial appointments are important from the United States, the override is important from Canada, uh, the supermajority from South Korea, etc., etc. So there is, uh, I think, also this uh, legitimizing uh, role. Of course, one of the big differences between the American system and the, and the Israeli system, other than the fact that the U.S. has many other checks and balances and it is, is a federal state, etc., is also that in the U.S., uh, in, 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 in recent decades, there has been a fluctuation of, uh, of political power between, uh, between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, in Israel, as I said before, it seems that this is a much more uh, stable situation. So the party that is in control of parliament will be uh, in a position to take uh, control over the judiciary on a more or less permanent basis. Uh, this brings me to the question of how big a deal this really is. On the one hand, you say the Israeli left has been concerned about the state of Israeli democracy for a number of years now. And uh, from an outsider perspective, there's a certain amount of crying wolf that, you know, every every government is the most right-wing government in history. Everything that that a government does is the end of, you know, something uh, that is important. And so I think there's a bit in the United States of kind of fatigue with the sort of sense that everything is on a precipice. 
On the other hand, I look at these reforms and I say, wow, you know, this really does seem like it everything's on a precipice. And so I'm I'm interested your your series is extremely measured and and careful in its rhetoric and yet it says in the opening essay that you don't mean to sound neutral about it. This is a a, a big deal and very dangerous. So Yuval, I'm I want to. I want your sense of how big a deal it is and how dangerous it is. Is this a thing where Israel will be know, a little bit less democratic if this passes, or is this, you know, like the Polish government uh, or the Hungarian government coming in in a democratic fashion and stripping away the judiciary's independence in a fashion that creates effectively uh, not a one-party state but a one block state yeah i think it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's very serious and uh, and uh, i mean you are right that there have been israelis that have uh, identified already uh, you know phenomena such as the occupation or the corruption trial of netanyahu uh, and uh, other uh, problematic developments as uh, as the end of democracy i i think uh, i will speak also for amichai uh, we we were not part of that camp. There were challenges, there were problems, but I think what we're seeing here is on a, is on a different scale because it involves the dismantling of the one and only check that currently exists on executive power, and which is also uh, in control of legislative power, and that is the judiciary. This is the one safeguard that Israel democracy has. Uh, I think for many years there was a concern about uh, the um, sustainability or the the robustness of this safeguard, but now we are seeing a full-fledged, all-out assault on this uh, on this uh, safeguard, and it is um, it is coupled by uh, weakening of uh, the whole idea of 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 a rule of law of of law in the country because the logic of uh, of of this development is is like I said before is to remove all obstacles on the path of the government. So the government will choose the lawyers that will uh, represent it. It will not follow their opinion if it's not a legal opinion, if it's not advantageous. Uh, it will uh, appoint judges in the Supreme Court. It will ignore decisions of the Supreme Court if, uh, by passing an override if it, uh, if it feels like it. It will deprive the court from initially from reviewing. So, so you ask yourself, why is such a radical reform being pursued? And the answer uh, must be is that this is part of a plan to introduce essentially a, a regime change. Uh, now, uh, so, so I think the Hungary and Poland model is quite appropriate. I mean, the comparison. And uh, I also think that it would not be surprising, and many Israelis think that this is going to be the next stage in the so-called regime change, that there would be interference uh, with the voting uh, laws in Israel uh, with the view to ensuring that the current coalition uh, more or less stays in power for the foreseeable future. Uh, Because the logic uh, of, uh, I mean, giving so much power to the executive is actually an indication that uh, you envision yourself as being the executive uh, from here onwards, because you wouldn't want to the other party when it is in power to have such uh, extent of unlimited power. If I may add two short points, 
One is that if you look at the demonstrations and the opposition to the suggestions, you know, it's the first time, I think, in, in, at least in my, in my memory, right, in, in the recent decades, that so many Israelis have gone to the streets and it's the, the bedrock of Israeli society. So there are uh, letters from reserve pilots in the Air Force saying, we will not serve uh, as reserve pilots under this regime, right? And, and, and economists and, and, and entrepreneurs claiming we are taking our companies out. And in large numbers, so that's the first point. And the second point relates directly to your question, one important reason that all these claims, what, what you call the crying wolf, were, uh, did not materialize before is exactly because there was a limitation. So the processes, certain processes in the Israeli society were somewhat delayed or, or um, mitigated by, by the fact that there was uh, an obstacle for them in the presence of, of, the, of the court. Dismantling the court would, of course, uh, also bring back all the previous ideas and plans that perhaps did not materialize, but will now materialize. So you'll get not only the fact, as Yuval said, that changing the government in free elections will become much more difficult, but also a lot of plans that did not pay, take place will now take place. All of which leads to the question, what are the prospects for this actually passing? When, you know, in, in the United States, the fact that the president wants a law doesn't mean it's going to happen. Uh, when the government of Israel wants a law, it almost per se has the votes to pass it. This package has passed its first reading of what needs to happen before it becomes uh, a final, finally passed. Yeah, so uh, under the Israeli system, uh, laws have to pass three readings in the Knesset. Uh, laws, some of uh, the bills who uh, have to pass four readings, depending on whether it originates in the government or uh, private members of Knesset. And what is a reading? A reading is a simply an up and down, up or down vote. So uh, there will be a reading on the on the draft. Uh, some parts of the package have already passed first reading. Then it goes to a committee. The committee uh, would then uh, discuss the bill uh, on a article by article, section by section basis. Would vote on each section, and then it would go for another section by section vote in, in the in the in the in the plenary of the Knesset. And then the whole uh, bill would go for an up or down vote. Now, that sounds quite complicated, but if the government wants to do it, it can do everything within a week. And there have been many laws, including basic laws in Israel, that were passed from start to end within a, a week. So in terms of uh, when will the process run its course, currently it is predicted to run its course by the end, by the, the Passover uh, break, which is in about a month uh, uh, a month's time. So we are talking about a rather uh, short uh, timeline in which the government can pass uh, these laws. 
it currently has it still has the votes because it's a co- it's a coalition of 64 members of Knesset which is again quite remarkable we had uh, the elections had uh, uh, had surprising results uh, uh, there were two left-wing parties that didn't pass the electoral threshold, and hence the right wing uh, not only won the elections, but it won it uh, handily, much more than it was predicted. And I think this is another reason why they are pushing quite aggressively now, because they sense that this is a golden opportunity for, for that part. Will they pass the laws? It's really at this point in time, it's up in the air, because there is a strong political push on the government side, but they are also uh, encountering very strong resistance. I mean, the demonstrations are massive uh, and they do uh, have their toll. I mean, the government's approval ratings are uh, plummeting. According to recent polls, if elections would take place now, they would lose the elections. According to uh, some polls, even, even would lose it quite badly. Uh, there is also uh, an economic pressure that is growing by the day. Uh, these reforms are not only not popular within the Israeli electorate, they're also not popular with the markets. So the shekel is going down, uh, is losing uh, current, is losing its, its, its status. I mean, the stock exchange is going down. As Amichai said, investment is being pulled out. And of course, uh, the, the reaction, uh, the international reaction is uh, increasingly critical. And the question is whether at the end of the day, the Netanyahu and his government will be able to withstand uh, this uh, amount of pressure. Uh, the final point, which I want to mention, that even if the legislation passes Knesset, it will go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court would be in a very uh, interesting position, to put it mildly, in which it would have to review the validity of legislation that takes away its own power, and I think it is fair to say that there, uh, that there is a good likelihood that the court would strike down the legislation under a variety of legal doctrines, uh, which that, and that would throw the, 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 the state into a complete uh, state of chaos. Because at this point in time, it would no longer be clear whether, um, what is the, what is the legal situation because the government would deny that the court has the authority to strike down the legislation. And many officials would have to choose whether they would follow the instruction of the minister or the or the decision by the court. So it's really we are headed towards a very high cliff. So just on the on the final passage question, what would be the mechanism by which it would fail to pass? Is it that the government would somehow fall? Is it that? Uh, Netanyahu would, seeing the unpopularity of it and the negative reaction, would pull it? Or is it that some members of the coalition would defect and vote against it? If you're imagining something between now and Passover where that prevents its passage, what does that look like? So the assumption is, and, and from a personal standpoint, you know, as an Israeli, it must be that there is an area in which all parties can come to some kind of an agreement which will protect the basic features of the Israeli democracy and uh, respond to some of the claims that the, uh, the current coalition, those suggesting the reforms, some of the claims that they, uh, that they raise. There is such an area. Whether the parties will be willing politically 
to compromise and get to that area uh, is the difficult question. But I think the, the best case scenario is some kind of an agreement. Of course, the, the coalition will be pushed by uh, international economic uh, forces to get some kind of an agreement. And the opposition, you know, it's, it's in a very weak position because without an agreement, the possibilities of losing the vote. So that's a best case scenario. As Yuval said, it's not at all clear that the parties will go to it. Um, the coalition, of course, has a very strong interest to pass as much as it can. And there is now a race between the political powers supporting the passage and the economic and, and uh, international powers pushing against it. And as long as they'll do it very quickly, uh, then I think uh, they have a good chance of passing it. And also in the opposition, it's true that they might uh, uh, lose the vote in, in the Knesset, but uh, losing the vote, as Yuval said, is not the end of the game. There is still a decision in the Supreme Court and the next elections. And perhaps some of the opposition parties are looking at the next election and viewing a loss in the current round as the best possibility of winning the, the next election. We are going to leave it there. Amichai Cohen, Yuval Sheni, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, are you a material supporter of Lawfare yet? If so, thank you. If not, you need to become one because this podcast doesn't make itself, Lawfare doesn't write itself, and projects like this require a lot of support to make happen. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.